Welcome to the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. Today we present our 2023 Patreon Halloween special, featuring the 1973 spoken word album Spooks and Spirits for Halloween, summoned up by William Conrad, chosen by our patrons as the second best Patreon-only episode of 2023. Now, if you want to hear the best Patreon-only episode of 2023, an intricate and disturbing play called Bonehouse from the CBC anthology series Deep Night, go to patreon.com slash themorals and become an official member of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. Membership privileges include bonus Patreon-only podcasts like Secrets of the Mysterious Old Radio, featuring oddities, tangents, and other indulgent selections. Cliffhangers of Doom, dedicated to adventure, crime, and mystery serials. B-sides of the Mysterious Old Radio, supplements and side trips inspired by our weekly podcast, and our newest edition, the Mysterious Royal Listening Society, focusing on mysterious radio dramas from the BBC. But wait, there's more. As a patron, you have access to our Patreon-only Discord server, monthly Zoom happy hours with your mysterious old hosts and fellow patrons, Joshua's bi-monthly mysterious old book club, and last but so not least, recordings of our live stage performances. We love our Patreon community, and we think you will too. Happy New Year, and on with the show. (laughs) The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society Podcast. Welcome to the Mysterious Old Halloween Patreon Special. I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. If you're listening to this, it means you are a member in good standing of the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society. And this Halloween, we thank you with the spoken word children's album, Spooks and Spirits for Halloween, summoned up by William Conrad. Recommended to us by our mysterious patron, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. My research into the album produced scant results. Here is what I know. It was released in 1973 by Cademon Records and featured the unmistakable voice of William Conrad reciting old poems and folk tales, mostly of Scottish and English origin, with the exception of the album's centerpiece, A Strange Tale from West Africa, entitled Fariel and Debo Engel the Witch. I did, however, dig up some interesting peripheral information. Cademon Records was founded in 1952, and their first record, Dylan Thomas's milestone recording of A Child's Christmas in Wales, laid the groundwork for today's multi-million dollar audiobook industry. In the years to follow, Cademon established itself as the foremost publisher of English-language spoken word audio. Today, Cademon is owned by HarperCollins, who continues to publish new audiobooks under the historic label. 
The distinctive cover illustration for Spooks and Spirits for Halloween, featuring a cheerful-looking William Conrad surrounded by an entourage of ghoulish characters, was the work of husband and wife team Leo and Diane Dillon. In the course of their 50-year career, the duo created hundreds of covers and interior illustrations for science fiction novels and magazines, and their work for children's books earned them the Caldecott Medal two years in a row, 1976 and 1977. And now, let's pretend we've donned our PJs after a lucrative night of trick-or-treating and conned our parents into letting us stay up late to listen to Spooks and Spirits for Halloween, summoned up by William Conrad, first released on vinyl in the long-ago year of 1973. The Merry Night of Halloween. The full moon casts on bush and hedge its sheen. Hush! It's the Merry Night of Halloween. Hush, hush! Grandmother mounts her broomstick. What a horse it is! She flies fast as the wind across dark clouds, dark air. She flies up, she flies down. She flies to join the gayest dance in town. Hush! Hush! The little boy sings out, Hi-ho, hi-ho, where, mother, are you hurrying to go? Sleep, little one. Ooh, I have things to do. I'll sweep the chimneys with my broom. Low, hi, how easy I fly. Hush, hush. The hemlock's swaying in the wind tonight. It's like a wonder horse, too swift and light. Hush, hush. On skinny poles, on sticks, on strips of cord, the witches fly, all dressed in black, a horde whisk through the sky. Cloak, pointy hat, and broom. Death laughs behind the cool stone of a tomb. Hush. Hush. A thief is hanging from the gallows. One witch greets another, and then they have their fun. In the air they bow, three times circle now. Swing the poor body back and forth, and fly high in the night sky. Hush. Hush. The Ghost's Song. Woe is me, woe is me. The acorns not yet fallen from the tree that's to grow the that's to make the cradle, that's to rock the bear, that's to grow a man, that's to lame.
Fariel and Debo Angle, the witch. A long time ago, there lived a witch called Debo Engel. She had ten daughters who were beautiful girls whom all men sought after. And from time to time, youths would make the long journey to the house where they lived, hidden away in the bush. But none of these young men ever returned to their villages again. Although nobody knew the reason why. Debo Engel knew, however. When young men called to see her lovely daughters, she would pretend to be delighted to meet them, giving them palm wine to drink and serving them choice food until night fell. And then she would say, It is too late and the night is too dark for you to walk back to your homes through the bush. Why not stay the night here and then go home at daybreak in safety? The young men would gladly agree, and Debo Angle would tell them to lie down around the fire she kept burning in the biggest hut in the compound. And soon... All would be asleep. The wicked witch would then sharpen her large knife, creep up to the lads, and kill them silently, one by one, with the skill of long practice. Then in the morning, she would eat them. Debo Engel did not feed on rice or corn or yams. Only human flesh satisfied her cruel appetite. Now in a village some miles away lived a woman who had ten sons, and they heard of the beauty of Debo Engel's daughters and wanted to visit them. Their mother entreated the boys not to go. It is an evil compound. Keep away, my sons, she begged. So many young men have gone never to return, and I don't want to lose all my sons at once. But the lads laughed at her fears and assured her that they could look after each other and that ten men would be a match for any woman. Besides, the daughters were said to be so very beautiful that none of the young men could rest until they had seen the maidens. Early the next morning, the ten brothers set off in high spirits, singing and laughing as they walked along the narrow paths which led to the bush to Debo Engel's compound. No sooner had they left their mother than she gave birth to an eleventh son. But what a strange-looking child he was, being scarcely the size of his mother's little finger. Then he stood upright straight away and spoke to her. Good mother, he said, his bright little black eyes gazing fixedly at her face. Where are my brothers? They have gone to Debo Engel's compound, she replied in amazement, wondering how it was that he knew he had any brothers. At this, the little boy gave a shout, exclaiming, Then I must go after them and save them. And he ran swiftly down the path which his brothers had taken. Very soon, he saw the ten lads in the distance and called after them, Hey! Hey, wait for me! The brothers stopped and turned to see who was calling. And when the tiny boy ran up to them, they stared open-mouthed. Presently, one of them managed to say, Who are you? And what do you want? My name is Ferriel. And I am your youngest brother, he replied. Indeed you are not, for there are only ten of us, they replied. Now go away and leave us in peace. I want to come with you to save you from harm, said Ferriel. At this the brothers were angry and began to beat him, saying, Don't be so silly. How can you be our brother? Now go away and leave us in peace. They beat him so hard that he lay senseless on the ground. And then the unkind brothers went on their way toward Debo Engel's home. Some time later, one of the brothers found a piece of beautiful cloth lying across the path. Look what I've found, he exclaimed. 
Some careless person has dropped this fine cloth. This really is a lucky journey, isn't it? He picked up the cloth, slung it over his shoulder, and continued on his way. But somehow the cloth seemed to get heavier and heavier. And presently he said to the second brother, Will you carry this for me? It's so very heavy on my shoulder. The second brother laughed at him for a weakling, but very soon he too found the cloth too heavy and passed it on to the third, and so it went on until it reached the eldest of the ten brothers. And when he complained about the weight, a shrill voice from inside the cloth called out, I'm inside. That's why you find the cloth so heavy. It's Feriel, your youngest brother. The young men were furious. And shaking Feriel out of the cloth, they beat him again and again until once more they left him lying senseless beside the path. Well, that's the end of him, they said. Lying little scoundrel. So they went on their way, for it was a long journey, and they began to hurry since they had wasted some time in beating Feriel. Suddenly one of the brothers kicked his toe against a piece of metal, and as he bent to pick it up, he saw that it was a silver ring. Hey, what luck, he exclaimed. Somebody has dropped a ring, and now it's mine. And placing it on his finger, he swaggered happily along. But after a few minutes, his hand hung heavily at his side, and it was all that he could do to walk, so weighty had the ring become. And the same thing then happened with the ring as with the cloth, each brother taking turns to wear it, but passing it on when it got too heavy, until at last it reached the eldest. There's something odd about this ring, he said, and was just taking it off his finger when Furiel's voice piped up, saying, I'm inside! That's why it's so heavy! And he jumped out of the ring and onto the ground. Well, the brothers were about to beat him again when the eldest said, He seems determined to follow us, and he's certainly been very cunning about it. Leave him alone and let him follow us to Debo Ingle's place after all. So on they went, until at last they reached the compound they were seeking, and Debo Engel came out to greet them. Welcome, she cried. Welcome to our home. Come and meet my daughters. The ten girls were very lovely, and the brothers could scarcely take their eyes away from them. They were led away to the largest hut, and Debo Engel brought them delicious food and drink. At first she did not see Feriel, for he was hidden behind the eldest brother's foot, but suddenly she caught sight of him, picked him up, and exclaimed, What a charming little fellow you are. Come with me to my hut, and I will see that you are properly looked after. Never have I seen anyone so tiny. You must stay with me and be mine. The brothers were surprised when Feriel allowed himself to be led away without protest. But they soon forgot all about him as they feasted and drank and danced with the ten beautiful girls. Night came and the brothers talked about going home. But Debo Engel persuaded them to stay where they were. There is no moon, she said, and you might lose your way. There are many snakes and wild animals about at this season, too, so stay with us and return to your home by daylight tomorrow. The lads needed little persuasion and soon began another dance, while Debo Engel brought more palm wine to refresh them. At last, however, the ten boys and girls had to admit that they were too tired to stay awake any longer, and Debo Engel lent the brothers some mats and pillows on which to rest in the large hut where the girls were already almost asleep.
the wicked witch went back to her hut and gave Feriel a comfortable mat to sleep on and a specially soft pillow for his head. There you are, she said. Go to sleep now and do not wake until the morning. I shall sleep on the mat beside you, my little man, so you'll be quite safe. So saying, she lay down and closed her eyes, and soon the compound was wrapped in silence. Presently, Debo Engel sat up and bent over Feriel to see if he was asleep. He closed his eyes and kept perfectly still. She stood up, went to the corner where she kept her big knife. But just as she was taking hold of it, Feriel called out, What are you doing? Hastily replacing the knife, Debo Engel said sweetly, Aren't you asleep yet, little man? Let me smooth your pillow for you. And she tidied his bed and shook up the pillow and begged him to sleep in peace. Once again she lay down beside him, and once again Feriel pretended to sleep, so that after an hour the wicked witch got up for the second time and took out her knife, ready to sharpen it. What are you doing? called Feriel again, so making some excuse, Debo Engel came back to her bed and told him to go to sleep again. For a long time after that, all was quiet, but Feriel did not sleep. He waited until the steady breathing of the woman on the mat beside him told him she was asleep, and then silently he crept out of the hut and made his way to where his brothers and the ten beautiful maidens were. Gently and silently, he changed all their clothes, putting the white gowns the boys wore over the girls and covering his brothers in the blue robes of the women. Then he returned to Debo Engel's hut, lay down again, and waited. Sure enough, Debo Engel soon woke with a start, and for the third time she crept to the corner of her hut, seized her knife, and began to sharpen it. Feriel did not interrupt her this time, and she slipped out of the door, holding the gleaming blade in her hand. Stealthily, she entered the young people's hut, bent over the ten sleeping forms wrapped in white clothes, and cut their throats with practice skill. <laughs> They'll make me a splendid meal tomorrow, she muttered to herself as she lay down contentedly and fell asleep again. As soon as he was sure Debo Engel would not wake, Feriel hurried into the big hut and shook each of his brothers by their shoulders. Get up, get up, he whispered. Debo Engel meant to kill you all, and had I not changed over your clothes, she would have done so. Look! And he pointed to the ten girls who lay with their throats cut. The old witch thinks it is you she has killed. The brothers needed no second bidding, but tumbled hastily out of the door and began their journey home through the bush, anxious to get as far away from Debo Engel as possible before she woke up again. But it was no use. As soon as the witch woke and discovered that Feriel was no longer by her side, she rushed into her daughter's hut and saw that she had killed them by mistake in the darkness. Uttering a fearful cry, she called up the wind, mounted on its back, and flew towards the brothers, who were as yet scarcely halfway home. Feriel saw her coming. Look out, he shouted to his brothers. Here comes the old witch. The brothers were panic-stricken, but Feriel knew what to do. Seizing a hen's egg from under a bush, he dashed it on the ground between them and Debo Engel. 
The egg immediately turned into a wide, deep river, and the young men were able to continue on their way. Debo Engel was furious and turned about at once and made for home. But the brothers had not got rid of her so easily, for she came back with her magic calabash and began to empty out all the water from the swiftly flowing river. Soon there was not a drop left, and she was able to continue her journey once more. Feriel saw her coming and shouted, Look out! Here comes the old witch again! While he seized a large stone, flung it in her path. Immediately it changed into a high mountain, and the brothers continued on their journey, certain that Debo Engel could not get through them now. But the witch was not defeated yet. She went back to her home on another puff of wind and fetched her magic axe, and then she hacked and chopped and chopped and hacked until at last the whole mountain disappeared, and she was able to continue on her way. But she was too late. Just then, Feriel saw her coming again and gave his brothers a warning shout. Look out! He cried as they saw their village ahead, and with one final effort, they reached their house. Debo Engel knew that she could not touch them there and went away defeated, muttering fearful curses under her breath. But Debo Engel did not let the matter rest there. She was determined to get hold of the young men and kill them, even as she had mistakenly killed her own daughters. So she lay in hiding and waited her chance. Early next morning, the village headman told the brothers to go into the bush and collect logs. Somewhat fearfully, they went, keeping close together and glancing over their shoulders from time to time in case the witch turned up again. They did not see her, however, for the very good reason that she had heard the headman's instructions and had immediately turned herself into a log of wood. As the lads collected the logs, they stacked them beside the path. Come on, one of them called to Feriel. Don't be so lazy. Why are you standing still while we do all the work? Because Debo Engel has turned herself into a log, and I do not want to be the one who picks her up, he explained. On hearing this, the brothers threw down the logs they were carrying and raced for home. Debo Engel, who was furious that she had not yet been picked up, changed herself back into a witch and hid in the bush, still longing for revenge. A few days later, the brothers went off into the bush to collect wild plums. At first, they only found trees with somewhat withered fruit, but suddenly they came upon a bush with bright green leaves and luscious, juicy plums hanging from its branches. Look at this! What luck! exclaimed the eldest brother, reaching out his hand to pluck the fruit. Stop! commanded Ferriol. Don't you realize it's a magic tree and Debo Engel is inside it? If you fill your calabashes with fruit, she'll soon have you under her spell. The brothers dropped their calabashes and ran home with haste, and once again, Debo Engel's plans were frustrated. The next morning, when the brothers came out of their compound, they saw a gray donkey grazing on the communal grass at the edge of the village. It seemed to belong to no one, and the brothers thought it must have strayed from a nearby village. What luck, said the oldest. Let's all have a donkey ride. And one by one, they climbed onto the donkey's back until all ten of them were perched up there precariously. And then they turned to Ferriel, standing beside them, and called, Room for one more! Jump on! There's no room at all, replied Ferriel. Even I, as small as I am, could not get on that donkey's back now. Immediately, the strangest thing happened. The donkey began to grow longer, and there was plenty of room for Ferriel. Aha, he shouted. You won't catch me climbing on the back of such an elongated donkey. Then, much to everyone's surprise, the donkey shrank back to its normal size. Feriel laughed. You have all been tricked again, he said. 
Donkeys don't usually understand what human beings are saying, but this one does, so it must be Debuingle again. Get off if you value your lives. The brothers tumbled off the donkey's back, and the animal went braying back to the bush, where it changed into Debuingle. And now the witch was desperate. She had tried all her magic tricks, save one, and she was determined to make this a success. If I can only catch Feriel, I shall be sure of the others, she said to herself, and sat in deep contemplation, planning another wicked scheme. The next morning, a beautiful maiden walked into the village. The villagers crowded round her and asked why she had come. I want to see Feriel, she replied in a clear bell-like voice. Will you lead me to his house? Feriel was amazed to see such an attractive girl and asked her to come into the visitor's hut. And then he went out and killed a young goat and told his mother to cook the meat for his beautiful guest. All day long he entertained the maiden, giving her delicious food to eat and talking to her all the while. The villagers, who had never seen such beauty before, came peeping into the hut from time to time and went away exclaiming loudly at the wonderful sight. When evening came, the maiden said she must go back to her home. Will you lead me through the bush, Feriel? she asked. It is too dark for me to go alone. Feriel willingly agreed, and the whole village turned out to bid them goodbye. It was very dark, and Feriel led the way along the little winding path that the maiden had told him led to her home. And then suddenly she disappeared behind a thick tree trunk and was completely hidden. Feriel stood still, alert and waiting, straining his eyes in the dark. And then... Out slithered a horrible fat python, which made straight for Feriel, and would have coiled itself round him and crushed him to death had he not been waiting for this moment. Ha-ha! Debo-Ingle! He laughed and changed himself into a roaring fire. The python had no time to turn around. It could not stop its huge rippling body from dashing straight into the fire, where it immediately perished. Great was the joy in Feriel's village when he went home and told his brothers the tale and great was the feasting and dancing they had that night to celebrate the death of the wicked witch Debo Ingle. This night for to ride, the devil and she together, through thick and through thin, now out and then in, though ne'er so foul be the weather. A thorn or a burr she takes for a spur, with a lash of a bramble she rides now, through brakes and through briars, o'er ditches and mires, she follows the spirit that guides now. No beast for his food dares now range the wood, but hushed in his lair he lies lurking, 
while mischiefs by these on land and on seas at noon of night are a-working. The storm will arise and trouble the skies this night and more for the wonder the ghost from the tomb affrighted shall come called out by the clap of the thunder. The Secret Commonwealth. In North Wales, there is a cave that is said to reach from its entrance on the hillside, under the Morda, the Sieriog, and a thousand other streams, under many a league of mountain, marsh, and moor, all the way to Kirch Castle. And it is also said that whoever goes within five paces of its mouth will be drawn into it by the fairies and lost. All around, the grass grows thick and rank. Even animals fear the spot. A fox, with a pack of hounds, in full cry at his tail, once turned round short on approaching it, his hair all bristled and fretted like frostwork with terror, and ran into the middle of the pack, as if anything earthly, even unearthly death, was an escape from what was waiting in the cave. And the hounds in pursuit of this fox would not touch him, on account of the smell and gleam that stuck to his coat. Ilias Apevan, who happened one night to stagger just upon the rim of the cave, was so frightened at what he saw and heard that he arrived home perfectly sober. The only interval of sobriety, morning, noon, or night, that Elias had been afflicted with for upwards of twenty years. Nor ever after that experience could he get tipsy drink he never so faithfully to that end. But one misty Halloween, Iolo Apu, the fiddler, decided to solve the mysteries of the cave. Now he provided himself with an immense quantity of bread and cheese and seven pounds of candles and ventured in. He never returned Long, long afterwards, at the twilight of another Halloween, an old shepherd was passing close to the place when he heard a faint burst of melody dancing up and down the rocks above the cave. As he listened, the music gradually molded itself into something like a tune. Though it was a tune I had never heard before. And then there appeared at the mouth of the cave a figure well known to me by remembrance. It was dimly visible, but it was Iolo Apu. I could see that at once. He was capering madly to the music of his own fiddle with a lantern dangling at his breast. And suddenly the moon cleared through the mist and I saw poor Iolo for a moment. Oh, but it was clearly... His face was pale as marble and his eyes stared deathfully. His head dangled loose and unjointed on his shoulders. His arms seemed to keep his fiddle stuck in motion without his will. I saw him for that instant at the mouth of the cave and then, still capering and fiddling, he vanished like a shadow from my sight. 
but he slipped into the cave in a manner quite different from the step of a living and willing man. He was dragged inwards like the smoke up the chimney or the mist at sunrise. Poor Iolo. Years passed. All hopes and sorrows for him had not only lost their hurt, but were never forgotten. I had gone to live in a village far away across the hills, and then one cold December night, we were all shivering in church as the clerk was beginning to light the candles when music started suddenly from beneath the aisle and then it passed faintly along to the end of the church and died away until I could not tell it from the wind that was careering and wailing all about us. But I knew the tune. I knew it. The parson took down the tune from the shepherd's whistling. And here it is. <laughs> and leap here. A star stands opposite the farther end of the cave, and by its rays you can see Iolo and his companions. The Horny Golok. The horny Golok is an awesome beast, supple and scaly. It has two horns and a huntle of feet and a forky taily. How a witch tried to kill a king. Agnes Sampson, the eldest witch of them all, was after brought again before the king's majesty and his council, and being examined of the meetings and detestable dealings of those witches, she confessed that upon the night of All Hallow Even last, she was accompanied with great many witches to the number of two hundred, and that all they together went to see, each one in a riddle or sieve, and went into the same very substantially with flagons of wine, making merry and drinking by the way in the same riddles and sieves to the kirk of North Berwick and Lothian, and that after they had landed, took hands on the land and danced, singing all with one voice. Kuma go ye before, kuma go ye. If ye will not go before, kuma let me. At which time she confessed that this guileless Duncan did go before them playing this reel or dance upon a small trump called a Jew's trump until they entered into the Kirk of North Berwick. The said Agnes Sampson confessed that the devil, being at North Berwick Church, attended their coming in the habit or likeness of a man, and having made his ungodly exhortations, 
wherein he did greatly inveigh against the king of Scotland, he received their oaths for their good and true services toward him and departed, which done they returned to sea and so home again. Touching this Agnes Sampson, she is the only woman who by the devil's persuasion should have intended and put into execution the king's majesty's death in this manner. She confessed she took a black toad and did hang up the same by the heels three days and collected and gathered the venom as it dropped and fell from an oyster shell and kept the same venom close covered until she should obtain any part or piece of linen cloth that had appertained to the king's majesty as shirt, handkerchief, napkin or any other thing. She practiced to obtain these by means of one John Kurz attendant in his majesty's chamber and desired him for old acquaintance between them to help her to one or such a piece of cloth as is aforesaid which thing the said John Kurz denied to help her saying he could not and the said Agnes Sampson saith that if she had obtained any one piece of linen cloth which the king had worn she had bewitched him to death and put him to such extraordinary pains as if he had been lying on sharp thorns and ends of needles. Suppose you met a witch. Suppose you met a witch. There's one I know, all willow-gnarled and whiskered head to toe. We drowned her at Tenfoot Bridge uh, last June, I think. But I've often seen her since at twilight time under the willows by the riverbank, skimming the wool-white meadow mist astride her broom beach. And once, as she flew past with a sudden twist and flick of the stick, she whisked me in head over heels, splashing the scummy water up to my chin. Ooh. Yet there are witless folk will say they don't exist. But I was saying, suppose you met a witch up in that murky waste of wood where you play your hide-and-seek. Suppose she pounced out from a bush. She touched you. She clutched you. What would you do? No use in struggling in vain to pinch and pull. She's pinned you down, pitched you into her sack, drawn tight the noose. There's one way of escape, one word you need to know. W-A-N-D. Well... What does that spell? Oh, they learned it years ago. Two children, Roland and Miranda, clapped in a witch's sack and trapped just as you might be. He was a mild and dreamy boy, musical as a lark. In the dark of the jolting sack, he sang. She was quick in all she did, a nimble wit, her brain busy as a hive of bees at honey time. And Grimblegrum. That was the witch's name. Jog them home. This was the usual sort, a candy villa with walls of gingerbread, porch and pillar of barley sugar. She kicked the gate and the licorice beaded door, undid the sack string and tipped them on the glassy glacier-minted floor. As Roland fell, his boots struck the crystal paving stones and chipped them. Like an angry rocket, she launched at him. Miranda sprang for the magic wand and pinched it from her pocket. Tip-tap, oh house of cake, be a cloud-reflecting lake. With me and Roland, each a swan, gracefully afloat thereon. And deeper than air, plummet sounded, grimble-grum, the witch be drowned.
was done. Look there. Do you see two swans a-gliding, serene and cool, upon that heaven-painted pool, over the blue sky, over the floating clouds that shine like snow-white fleeces? Sudden, in burst of bubbles, the witch popped up and shivered the cloud to pieces. I'll gobble you yet, she gulped. But all she gobbled was water as with windmill arms she thrashed and lashed at them. No swimmer, she would have sunk like a boulder below had not a felon crow, black-hearted as his feathers, swooping, dipping, hoisted her by the belt and borne her, boggy, drooping, dripping, home. She'll follow us, no time to lose. Quick, we must fly, Miranda cried. Heavily they rose, far over field and forest, with whining wing, all night through, till dawn of day they flew. Meanwhile, the grimble witch, now dry, had put on her seven-league boots, and do or die, seven mile at a step came galloping, gulping, gobble you yet, I'll gobble you yet. The swans heard her cackle and a thudding where she stepped. Down by a screen of trees they swept, down to the lonely roadside out of view. I'll change myself to a rose of crimson hue set in a prickly hedge, Miranda said. And Roland, as for you, you'll be a piper and the magic wand your flute. Not a second too soon, for the witch's boot touched ground beside them, and she croaked, Oh, glorious, glorious rose, I have sought you from afar. How I wonder what you are. You may mock me from on high, but I'm the spider, you're the fly. Ah! <laughs> and then she gaped at that glorious and goriest of roses. With the greediest of eyes and the nosiest of noses, again she spoke. Good piper, this rose, how dainty it would look if I stuck it in my cloak. May I pluck it? Good lady, you may, and I'll play to you the while. And Roland smiled, for his was a magic flute, each golden note entrancing. None could listen without dancing. One note one, she spun like a top. Two notes two, she hopped and couldn't stop. Three notes three, and into that thorny, thistly tree, with a hop, skip, and a jump went she. Tootle toot, sang the flute, and up went her boot, and down again soon to the tantivy tune. Every thorn and twig did dance to the jig, and the witch willy-nilly, each prickle and pin as it skewered her in, was driving her silly. Hi-ho, shrieked she, and tickle me thistle, and prickle me dee. And battered she was as she trotted and tripped, and her clothes were all torn and tattered and ripped, till at last all mingled and mangled, her right leg entangled, her left leg right-angled, firm as a prisoner pinned to the mast, she stuck fast. Silence, not a sound, as Roland wiped the sweat from his brow, then gently with his pipe he touched the rose, out leapt Miranda to the ground, hand in hand, chuckling through the wild wood, away home they ran. That same evening, a cowman passing by paused by a roadside bush to cut a switch. He heard a cry, turning, saw in a hedge nearby a prickly witch who screamed and yelled and hissed at him and spat. So... He put a match to the hedge. 
And that was that. The strange visitor. A woman was sitting at her wheel one night, and still she sat, and still she span, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of broad, broad souls, and sat down at the fireside. And still she sat, and still she span, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of small, small legs and sat down on the broad, broad soles. And still she sat and still she span and still she wished for company. In came a pair of thick, thick knees and sat down on the small, small legs. And still she sat and still she span and still she wished for company. In came a pair of thin, thin thighs and sat down on the thick, thick knees. And still she sat and still she span and still she wished for company. In came a pair of huge, huge hips and sat down on the thin, thin thighs. And still she sat, and still she span, and still she wished for company. In came a wee, wee waist, and sat down on the huge, huge hips. And still she sat, and still she span, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of broad, broad shoulders, and sat down on the wee, wee waist. And still she sat, and still she span, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of small, small arms, and sat down on the broad, broad shoulders. And still she sat, and still she span, and still she wished for company. In came a pair of huge, huge hands, and sat down on the small, small arms. And still she sat, and still she span, and still she wished for company. In came a small, small neck, and sat down on the broad, broad shoulders. And still she sat, and still she span, and still she wished for company. In came a huge, huge head and sat down on the small, small neck. How did you get such broad, broad feet? quoth the woman. Much tramping, much tramping. How did you get such small, small legs? Hey, late and we how did you get such thick, thick knees? Much praying, much praying. How did you get such thin, thin thighs? High late and we move. How did you get such big, big hips? Much sitting, much sitting. 
And how did you get such a wee wee waist? I late and wee mool. How did you get such broad, broad shoulders? With carrying broom, with carrying broom. How did you get such small, small arms? I late and we move. How, how did you get such huge, huge hands? Threshing with an iron flail, threshing with an iron flail. How did you get such a small, small neck? I late and we How, how did you get such a huge, huge head? Much knowledge, much knowledge. And what, what did you come for? For you! That was the album, Vinyl, Spooks and Spirits for Halloween, summoned up by William Conrad here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society Halloween Patreon Special. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. God, I hated that. (laughs) Happy Halloween, guys. Happy Halloween. I just thought I'd pull that Band-Aid off. I love William Conrad, and I know you've got but peripheral information. But did you attempt to listen to it as you would as a small child? Uh, yeah. Oh, it oh, would have small scared child. the daylights out of me as a small child. Not me. or no? Nope, not me. These kind of folktale, um, scary stories that you go just all hate over the other place. People who are different from you and who live in other countries—that's fine. It's just that I don't know. And then he was a ring on his finger. Like it just—it goes on and on and on. I anyway. But we want to attack this. We're going to approach this segment by segment of the album, correct? Yes. So I'll tell you each and every step of the way what I hated about that one. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Here's the, we had four in a row. Really good monster month. I loved them. And then I listened to this last and, and then I went, oh, this definitely was not what I was expecting. Yeah. That's very interesting to me. What did you expect this to be? I I'm just curious. This was going to be maybe like Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, smaller little kid-oriented, relatively contemporary authors that are meant to be just sort of, here's a light, gentle story mm-hmm. about ghosts. Yes, that's what I expected it to. And when it was full of horror and weirdness, I got really excited <laughs> and adjusted my expectations. Uh Yes, uh, I'm not saying like I wish it were the thing that I wanted, uh, but yeah, no, it was I, I a shock. I was surprised at what it was. Uh, yeah. I, I really was, in that they would say this is great for children. Yet, um, <laughs> we'll talk about it as we get to each one. But I, this is the kind of stuff that would have terrified me as a 14th child. 14th century children. There's at least one story in here that was read to me multiple times as a child in like school settings as the, you know, the scary story that the librarian reads you and it it terrified me. But maybe I was a incredibly vulnerable <laughs> weak <laughs> child <laughs> emotionally, physically. 
All right, so the first one, The Merry Night of Halloween. I did do a little research into each individual one of these stories once I realized, hey, these seem like old folk tales and old poems that I don't think William Conrad sat down with a glass of whiskey and wrote himself. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Or improvised. Uh, But The Merry Night of Halloween, from my research, appears to be something that might have been written specifically as an intro for this album. Mm. Um, To me, it sounded like Ray Bradbury and Tom Waits collaborated <laughs> uh, on something. I mean, you just put a harmonium uh, uh, and a marimba in the background. It could be a cut from Swordfish Trombone. <laughs> I mean, things like the ref- the refrain, now I like hush, it. Hush, yeah. Uh, the hemlock swaying in the wind tonight. It's like a wonder horse, too swift and light. See, you do it in Tom Waits' voice, and you're like, oh, okay. I now like it. Good <laughs> the job. The main thing I took away from this first one was the setup that was completely undercut by the second one. Like, this is like, okay, I'm I'm with you. There's a rhythm to this. I'm taking in this information. And then the second one, I was like, what is that? <laughs> See, now this is the one that made me go, this would have terrified me as a child. I would have had to skip this, past that one as a child. This is... The ghost song that he oh my god! Woo! This but is stop this a is... second and imagine yourself as a child. That's what I did listening to this. But again, I was terrified by Mister Yuck Stickers, so that might be <laughs> about me. <laughs> that explains it. Uh, I think part of the problem with the ghost song is I kept ima- I could picture Conrad waving do, his arms around waving his arms around doing this and i was like oh no bill 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 but yes the actual content of that is like this is really messed up yeah do you know where this comes from no this, this no. is great so this is where he started digging in um and this song is from an old ghost story that's based in actual historical fact to some degree not the the ghost part of it but uh it's called the cold lad of hilton and it's the story of the ghost of a murdered stable boy named Robert Skelton, who is said to haunt the ruins of Hilton Castle in Sunderland, North England. Um, the events are said to have taken place in the 16th or 17th century. And there are several different versions of the legend. And what's funny is they're all just slightly different, but hilariously slightly different. Like <laughs> One of the reasons for him being murdered is that he uh, had involved himself romantically uh, with Baron Hilton's daughter. And then the other version is just that he overslept. <laughs> 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 and then, depending on the story, uh, Baron Hilton either gored him with a pitchfork, hit him over the head with a riding crop, or decapitated him with an unsaid instrument. <laughs> a loaf of bread. Can, uh, can I just say your research, listening to you, was more interesting than that? What happens is the um, stable boy haunts the estate, and uh, the servants see him dripping wet and naked, just walking around saying, I'm cold, which is where it says the cold lad from Hilton. Uh, and part of the story is the servants take pity on him, leave a, a some sort of clothing for him, and he disappears. But they hear this song being sung even after he has gone away. <laughs> the acorn's not yet fallen from the tree. That's to grow the wood. That's to make the cradle. That's to rock the bairn, uh, which is baby. Yeah. Uh, that's to grow the man, that's to lay me. And the translation I found meant that will 
exorcise me. So he's basically saying there is not a man that has been born yet that's going to stop my haunting. In a really high voice, he <laughs> says that. Yes. No man can lay me. It's like a bad Casper episode. <laughs> Casper is just Richie Rich dead. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so yeah, that's my research. True fact. Do it. <laughs> true. true fact. It's not even. Yep. Not even worth time to debate. <laughs> well, that's just common sense. <laughs> Again, your research. What you just said was much better than. We the should album. also explain that uh, for in honor of Halloween, we are also drinking atomic pumpkin spicy ale from uh, New Belgium. You We're are spicy. Today. I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eric's barely staying awake as it is. <laughs> uh, overall, I had a different reaction to that that song. It is absurd from an adult point of view, but I immediately recognized it as something well, that they... would creep me out because it's a grown man with a gravelly voice using the wrong kind of voice. That description of the amount of time, like, that is powerful to me. Mm-hmm. The woo song <laughs> undermined it. Yes. Watch Joshua. Mr. Yucky. Seriously, if I opened the cupboard and saw that sticker there, I would just slam it shut. Oh, I wanted to drink that Drano, but no, I can't. <laughs> so effective. Mr. Yuck has worn me off. All right, our next story is, as I said in the intro, the centerpiece. It's the longest one. It's 20-some minutes, I think. It's uh, <laughs> very like, did, did we switch? Did we go to no one? No, it's the same one. <laughs> no, no. First of all, I can't get out of my head. The main character is the size of her finger. <laughs> so the entire time, I'm like... The, the, the visualization uh, in my head was just hilarious. Well, it's difficult to visualize his brother's beating, beating him. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, wait a even second. Before that, I'm like, all right, have a good trip. Oh, one more baby. <laughs> that is and effective this. to me when they first describe him as tiny. There's something about, I'll sidetrack this a little into an actual like horror theory discussion of the horror of unexpected size. I think that's a yes. legitimate oh, thing. Yes. And when they described... Yes, just the suddenness. Oh, I had another baby. And it was the size of the mother's pinky. Yeah, yep. it made me and go, talks to her. Yeah, and knows it has 10 has brothers. Knowledge. It made me think, have you guys ever talks. seen The Kingdom, uh, the TV series yes, the original. by Lars von Trier? In this TV series, a woman gives birth to a full-size man baby. <laughs> and again, it's like, Dear. I will go to this roof right now and yell, Dance caviar. <laughs> Danish scum. So the fact that a 1973 children's album could remind me of the kingdom. <laughs> Lars Van Trier. Yeah, it's very similar. It's a point in its favor. Uh, but I, I realize that Eric hates this kind of thing, but I enjoy folk tales for their complete detachment from cause, effect, reality, internal logic, uh, these kind of things. Like this is. Following it's just, a plot and then, line. And then, and then. Yeah, it has and, the structure of... A shaggy dog joke. Yeah, like, it's just designed to go on and on and on. The mm-hmm. point is to like kill an hour to get this kid to go to sleep. <laughs> exactly. But again, when you're thinking it's for kids, it's gruesome. She slits throats and yeah. um, she eats slits her own daughter's throat. Flash. Yes, and then the little thumb guy <laughs> tricks her into killing her own children. Yeah, well, it's it, horrific. It's like hopping around a little bit here. Hey, little thumb guy. I like you best out of these guys. You're going to sleep in my room. <laughs> and she 
fluffs his pillow for him at one time. Yes. And again, it's all that proportion thing. We're like, is he yeah. just sleeping in the center of a gigantic pillow? Does she just keep or a thumb-sized tiny mattress? Pillow? A tiny little pillow. Just for hospitality. You don't know. Yeah, you never know. This happens regularly. <laughs> and Africa. then feels compelled to lie to him when she's sneaking around in the middle of the night. Like, oh, that's just getting some water and yeah, Just pillow. kill him. Don't judge me, pinky man. <laughs> You're my guest. I'll kill your brothers if I want. Uh, and I'm trying to imagine this tiny pinky-sized man undressing and redressing 20 men and women. <laughs> well, he does just lay the clothes over them. Oh, you're right, yeah. But he first had to get them off. It's true. Well, I, get... I can barely get my own pants off. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> and... Best improv group name is Elongated Donkey. <laughs> and when he's like, no, no, no. And it shrinks back up again. <laughs> like, awkward. And then she <laughs> says, ah, that was one of my best magic tricks. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's what you got? That's what you got. You should have started with the beautiful woman bit. That was your best bet. Nope, the donkey that grows and then shrinks back. Again. And that this little thumb guy is so heavy that it just burns through all of his brothers carrying him. Yeah. It, well, right? that I think well, is meant to symbolize the brothers' guilt for being. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh, I was ready to go. <laughs> the next one is The Hag, which is a poem from the 1600s by Robert Herrick, who was heavily influenced by classical Roman poetry and wrote on pastoral themes dealing mostly with the English country life and village customs, including hags. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and this is a, a pretty much straightforward atmospheric. I think they just needed a poem here to break up the two longer <laughs> stories because the next one is the, uh, the Secret Commonwealth. Do you remember this at all? It does start to blur together. Okay. <laughs> this one I, I did legitimately enjoy. To me, this had some creepy M.R. James-esque moments this is the one with the fiddler who had okay, a the... broken neck and who yep. danced the jig in the moonlight oh um, yeah yes because he got uh, lured into the fairy cave if i had a nickel <laughs> <laughs> what's that God. he needed to sneak a piece of fabric or am i getting the wrong story that's a different story but See, we'll get it, to it yeah it doesn't matter it's all just and then and then this is Interesting. I'm just going to state that, and you can't argue. <laughs> Guys, this is interesting. Well, based on my memory of this story, it's uh, I, I don't know about the story. This comes from a Scottish clergyman, Robert Kirk, who collected stories about fairies, witches, ghosts, and the second sight. And when he died, it was said that he had been taken away to fairyland for revealing the secrets of the fairies. His work was collected posthumously in a collection called The Secret Commonwealth, a title which some nerds out there may recognize as being the second book in Philip Pullman's Book of Dust trilogy. And he, oh, yeah, yeah, he yeah. He took it from this, The Secret Commonwealth. Uh, and last, last fact about this I have to share, uh, the original collected Book of Stories has one of the most hilariously long subtitles I have ever seen. So it was called The Secret Commonwealth or An Essay on the Nature and Actions of the Subterranean, in parentheses, and for the most part, in parentheses, invisible people heretofore going under the name of fauns and fairies or the like, 
among the Low Country Scots as described by those who have second sight. 1691. <laughs> so the title of the book is The Entirety of the First Chapter. <laughs> uh, but I did think this successfully had another adult scary image in that uh, dead fiddler. If he was a rich man. <laughs> uh, this could have been a lot more Jewish and been more entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to disagree. We going on? Yeah. yeah, this brings us to the horny Golok. Which was my favorite just because I heard Conrad say, say the word horny, horny, and you, horny many times. And that made you me now giggle. have a, a ringtone that is just a super <laughs> horny, 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 horny. I'm going to put that on my wife's phone when I call yeah. her. <laughs> I think Hagrid got kicked out of Hogwarts for keeping a horny Golok. <laughs> uh, but do you know what this poem is actually about you didn't know i'm turning this into a trivia game <laughs> no i don't know the, what anything on this album horny, is about quit asking me i don't understand Golok anything as an actual real world corresponding creature ron jeremy's first name <laughs> it is a description of an earwig gross i went online and there is a um fake wikipedia page for the horny Golok using all the Scots dialect. <laughs> There's a lot of fecking <laughs> about the description of the horny Golok, which is just a description of an earwig, as if it is a great monstrous creature. What's an earwig? It's an insect. It's like a sort of worm shaped. I mean, it's more of like. It's exactly as described in the poem, <laughs> it, the horny Golok. Does it go in your ear? That it, is an old wives' tale, and that's possibly. Is that on the album? <laughs> Earwig. No. <laughs> you come on. I you run out of here. You run out of patience for me. <laughs> no, it is a it's a small creature with a wig, okay, <laughs> shaped like an ear. Yeah, uh, I wish, <laughs> like a big fifties kind of bouffant. That should have been on the album. What's next, Joshua? Or How a it... witch tried to kill a king. And this is actually this is based on a true story of James the Sixth of Scotland. Wow. And there really was an Agnes Sampson who was dragged before the king, who was being told he had all these witches that were causing mischief uh, in Scotland, and he didn't believe it, but Agnes Sampson's confession changed his mind. Uh, it's not included in this poem, but apparently what changed his mind is that she quoted verbatim the conversation the king had with his wife on their wedding night. <laughs> well, going to bed. Yeah, going to bed. <laughs> Ed Wood impression. My next one will be better. <laughs> so we're married now, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. Well, your room's down the hall. <laughs> when are you going to start cooking? Uh, it but... does have the hanging... A clam upside down to drain its venom yeah clam venom is that a real thing I, I <laughs> also a great improv group <laughs> i couldn't verify the the veracity of clam venom hello i'm clam venom and this is my band extending donkey 
<laughs> it's elongated donkey, Sorry. which I think is a lot more serious sounding than yeah, extended donkey. Insult the. That's what happens when elongated donkey does really well. They <laughs> they get extended. extended. Stretchy donkey. <laughs> they get more weekends. What's weird to me is that this is another terribly dark bit of history that is included in this children's album <laughs> because this led to the North Berwick witch hunt in Scotland that ended up in the uh, arrest and execution of over 60 people. So, Happy Fun. Halloween! <laughs> Happy Halloween! <laughs> Trick or treat. Yes. Catch you some clam venom. It was strangely presented. It felt like a true crime, like Dragnet episode. The names of these witches have been changed. But it does sort of portray the one guy who wouldn't give away any handkerchiefs as, this is the real hero. Yeah. Because he was, no, I won't give you the creepily, creepily hoarding the king sheets for himself. (laughs) (laughs) What? I don't have his sheets. Uh, Suppose you met a witch, which is another poem that Eric clearly must have loved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This one was kind of fun. This was a little Wonder Twins. This is more what I expected out of the album. Honestly, seemed like kid adventure type of stuff. And uh, this was a more contemporary poem, so that's not surprising. This was written in the 1950s by an English author named Ian Sorreller. I may be terribly mispronouncing it. And it was turned into a children's book the same year this album came out. So maybe they had some sort of cross-promotional deal going on. And it was illustrated by Ed Emberley, who I remember as a kid who wrote uh, a book, Ed Emberley's Book of animal drawings that has these really weird fans. Book of Iron Maiden torture scenes. Yes. Mr. Yuck. He drew Mr. Yuck. Anyway, and this brings us to the (laughs) last story, The Strange Visitor, which is the story I remember from childhood. The poem that I think is legitimately creepy about the lonely spinner who has the body assemble itself piece by piece. Yeah, you got to have a great big set of hips to tell this. <laughs> like, come on. Really big set of hips. <laughs> and then what came? And a wee tiny little waist. You're messing with me. <sighs> I'm going to open myself up on Halloween to this little, Gross. little vulnerability here. Oh, there's earwigs. <laughs> earwigs everywhere. I'm familiar with this poem, and there was just something that struck me as really sad about the loneliness of this woman who's like, yeah, I'm so lonely that you can keep rolling body parts in here. (laughs) 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 This idea of how desperation and loneliness can shortcut what should be fear and horror. Right. So this way, like, all right. This goes back to our discussion of Carmilla. Building up like, hey, I see the legs and the knees and the hips and the torso, and I'll stop. This is enough body. That's enough. <laughs> That's all I really want. I'm not lonely anymore. <laughs> I just want a mismatched bottom for company. <laughs> <laughs> just a head outside. Do, do, do. Oh, we're not done. And <laughs> the as... head. Oh, is the head knocking? <laughs> With its tongue? It's back to the uh, the screaming skull. Right. <laughs> See, these things are really anchored in classic it's a horror here. Thick web of references. Yes, a mucusy web. <laughs> uh, I love the inexplicable explanation for his wee parts. 
he has really grand explanations oh. for each big muscular right. part but then she's like well what about that tiny and he's just like ah, late and we mall and i researched that no one knows what that means I'm there's dialect in there but no one really knows what it means some people have translated it into up late and little food i think i just quickly stretching. gave up and thought oh this is welsh but from what i could research it appears to be basically sorry, welsh people <laughs> i just thought this was some welsh nonsense <laughs> But basically, it seems to be that he's just being asked a question he doesn't like and going, blah, 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 to sort ah. of distract from the fact. Welsh. Which amused me. <laughs> I find it a disquieting little story. And when the librarian or school teacher, whoever read this to me, did the, well, why are you here to, mm-hmm. to get you or whatever it screams, it worked on me because I was like, is it Mr. Yuck? <laughs> <laughs> Just this small, twitching rabbit of a boy. <laughs> I will say, in all sincerity, I thank you so much for doing all that research because I had no idea how I was going to help contribute to this podcast uh, recording of this in any way, shape, or form because I was so lost, discombobulated, un. Uh, just, Unmoored. I just didn't. Lost. Lost. I just. Surly. Did, Pick the words. Thank you for doing all the research. You made this very interesting, and I was really glad to learn all of those things. I knew this would be the case with you. <laughs> Listeners don't know this, but last night was Tim held a party in honor of his uh, 10th wedding anniversary. Yeah. I was invited, but I did not go because I was like, Eric's going to just say, I'm out. I hated this. <laughs> uh, and I, That's why you didn't go. I did a lot of this research last night because as soon as I found the origins of some of these poems, I went, oh, no. <laughs> they all have origins, and now I must know them. <laughs> the worst part of this for me was staring at the album cover and what they did to poor William Conrad. I could that mask and that drawing of him. I will include an image of. I hated it. It was like surrounded by uh, the little tiny pinky man and the fiddler and characters from all these stories. The toughest man. In my vision, uh, you know, like, it's William Conrad, and he looks like an idiot, and I hate it. I hate looking at him. It looked to me like th- this was his psychedelic album that he released. Right. <laughs> like the Frank Sinatra was a, disco a, album. A little of uh, Shatner's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They call me William Conrad. Ask me what I thought of this. What do you think of this, Eric? <laughs>